This week on Art on the Air, we feature Senior Curator of Art and History for the Indiana State Museum, Mark Rushman. Next, we have the founder, music director, and conductor of the South Shore Orchestra, Maestro Troy Webdell. Our spotlight is on LaPorte County Symphony with conductors Carolyn Watson and Chuck Steck about the Holiday Pops concert on December 11th. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Larry. Art on the air today. Stay in the know with Larry and Esther. Art on the air our way. Express yourself through art. And show the world your heart, express yourself to art, and show the world your heart. Welcome, you're listening to Art on the Air on WVLP 103.1 FM and Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM, our weekly program covering arts and arts events throughout Northwest Indiana and beyond. I'm Larry Breckner of New Perspectives Photography, right alongside here with Esther Golden of The Nest in Michigan City. Aloha, everyone. We're your hosts for Art on the Air. Art on the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant through South Shore Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Art on the Air streams live at WVLP.org and is rebroadcast on Monday at 5 p.m. Plus is also heard on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM every Sunday at 7 p.m. Also streaming live at LakeshorePublicRadio.org and is available on Lakeshore Public Radio's website as a podcast. Our spotlight interviews are also heard Wednesdays on Lakeshore Public Radio. Information about Art on the Air is available at our website, breck.com slash AOTA. That's breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com slash AOTA. That includes a complete show archive, spotlight interviews, plus our show is available on multiple podcast platforms, including NPR One. Please like us on Facebook, Art on the Air, WVLP, for information about upcoming shows and interviews. And we'd like to welcome to Art in the Air Spotlight, the Port County Symphony Orchestra. We hope to have Carolyn Watson, uh, the conductor, join us, but we have Chuck Stett, the associate uh, conductor, and of course, the one and only Tim King, the executive director. Welcome to Art in the Air Spotlight. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Greetings. Well, Yeah, welcome. Well, I'll, I'll start with you, uh, Chuck. Tell us a little bit about uh, what you're planning to do for the uh, Holiday Pops concert. That's going to be on Saturday, December 11th at the Civic Auditorium in LaPorte. So tell us what's kind of on the uh, playbill. I am so excited about this program. Uh, I had the honor of sharing the stage with Dr. Carolyn Watson. Uh, she's very humbly agreed to allow me to, to have one more uh, chance of doing a little conducting on this program. And uh, she and I are tag teaming, as we say. To, to do this, uh, um, we were asked this morning about how, how co-conducting works and, uh, it wasn't, it's not like we're going to conduct the same pieces at the same time. Uh, she's got some great music that she's chosen for this program and she allowed me to check, uh, to, to choose some music that I get to conduct. I get to conduct some of my favorite pieces. And, uh, so it's just going to be a glorious night of, of holiday music. And we're going to be back with a live audience again, which is, the most exciting part of all of it for, for all of us who have ever done this program at any time. So what are some of the songs that we might hear that are familiar and maybe anything new? Uh, a few new things and some, some familiar things with some familiar friends. Uh, I'm excited to hear an overture that Carolyn's going to do uh, by Coleridge Taylor, a Christmas overture. It's not one I've ever done before. Uh, I've not ever conducted it before. I've, I've listened to the recordings and it is beautiful. I'm so excited to hear that and hear the orchestra perform that. Um, 
We are having our friends with uh, with the group Illumination back this year to do some of the vocal music. Uh, my good friend Sarah Gartshore, who is a Laporte resident and a great soprano, traveling the Midwest uh, on the operas and oratorio circuit, will be singing a couple selections with the orchestra. And I think the the most fun I'm going to have is going to be able to conduct uh, uh, Mr. Lee Morris, former mayor of Laporte and all around good guy. Um, he's going to tell the story that everyone wants to hear, and that's "Twas the Night Before Christmas." <laughs> also, Brandon Williams, uh, the Hoosier Star winner, will be singing as well. Yep. Is that yeah? Brandon so. and Sarah Agrecki are going to be back singing "Joy to the World" with the orchestra and illumination behind them. Uh, Tim, are you going to be doing anything on stage? No, I'm going to be supporting from the audience. <laughs> That's a good thing, too. <laughs> so tell this is actually, uh, Tim, and I'll direct this to you. This is actually also a fundraiser. Isn't that as we understand it? That is true. You know, for years, this was actually a fundraiser for the Hospital Foundation of Laporte, and they contracted with the orchestra to, to perform. Well, when the Healthcare Foundation of Laporte was formed, uh, they didn't need they didn't need to have fundraisers anymore because it's <laughs> Quite a well-endowed foundation. So they very kindly turned over the reins of Holiday at the Pops to the orchestra. Uh, and it has really been a nice boost uh, to the orchestra's bottom line for sure. Because if anybody's going to go to one concert a year, it's going to be the holiday concert probably. And so I'm seeing names pop up on the ticket list that I've never seen before. And that's really, really nice uh, to, to see that. The floor is sold out. We still have a couple of hundred tickets to sell in the balcony. Uh, but I feel very confident that they're going to go and we're going to have ourselves a nice house. You know, uh, I had the privilege of coming to your uh, Jazzy American salute, and I just love the concert. Love the space, too. I, I guess it's been a long time since I've been in the Civic Auditorium, but it's a really wonderful space and a very congenial audience. And uh, Carolyn did a great job with uh, the orchestra that day. She, by the way, for our radio audience, she's uh, with us, but her audio is not working. So um, where can they contact you to get tickets uh, for what's left? Uh well, the tickets are, are very reasonable. They're $15 for adults, and they're $5 for ages 12 and under. And they can go to our website, which is lcso.net. Uh, the Holiday at the Pops is the very first thing on the website. Uh, just click on the ticket icon and order as many as you want. And then we also have tickets on consignment at um, Roxy Music here in Laporte and actually at the Civic Auditorium itself. So um, if you want tickets to the concert, you better go on ahead and get them now. Are you still going to have all those holiday sweet treats available for purchase? Of as course, well? <laughs> of course. Yes. In fact, I just we have a, a committee's getting together, and uh, we're putting uh, Indiana Deli is going to be providing uh, a lot of pre-orders for people, and then we're going to have some nice dessert platters and chocolate dip pretzels, and um, it'll be nice. I'm sure I'll, I'll put my hand in there a couple of times too. I'm sure <laughs> during the concert. Yeah, it looks like we got Carolyn online here. So um, what do you have on the agenda for the uh, concert coming up uh, in the Holiday Pops? Hi, everyone. And yeah, as Chuck said, I'm, I'm particularly excited about uh, opening the concert with the Coleridge-Taylor Christmas <laughs> Overture, um, which we'll have after our kind of other other opener in many ways. The Overture, of course, being typically the first piece on the program, but we've got even a prelude to the Overture, as it were, which is going to be uh, the final movement of Bizet's La Lazienne Suite Number 2, a very well-known piece by the name of Farandol. I'm also very much looking forward to conducting the waltz from Sleeping Beauty, and of course, every 
everyone's holiday favorite, Sleigh Ride. Of course. <laughs> you, can't ha- you can't have a concert with that without Sleigh Ride. <laughs> well, we have about a minute left. Uh, just looking forward to what uh, do you have on the agenda in March? And uh, I guess you have another one in April concert-wise. Uh, Carolyn, go ahead and take those. Yeah, so we have a wonderful classical subscription concert coming up in March um, with a great cellist and guest of mine uh, that's going to play the Tchaikovsky Rococo Variations for Cello and Orchestra. Also on their program is Verdi's Force of Destiny Overture and Tchaikovsky's Mighty Symphony Number no. 5. And then April is a very different kind of thing uh, with respect to repertoire, programming, style, feel, and that's just a wonderfully fun program full of very uh, – listenable and familiar music that is all by uh, film composers and John Williams features very heavily there. So something to look forward to in both March and April. Well, we'd like to thank Dr. Carolyn Watson, conductor of LaPorte County Symphony, uh, Chuck Steck, the associate conductor, and of course, the one and only Tim King, the executive director. Thank you so much for coming on Art in the Air Spotlight for Saturday, December 11th, your holiday pops concert. Yeah, happy holidays. Thank Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Art on the Air, WVLP 103.1 FM, and on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM. We'd like to welcome to Art on the Air from the Indiana State Museum, the Senior Curator of Art and History, and uh, their mission is to serve as a catalyst for the informal, lifelong learning that connects the stories of real people, places, and things, and be a leader in the informal uh, learning that goes on there. Please welcome to Art on the Air, the Senior State Courier and Art History, Mark Rushman. Welcome to Art on the Air. Good to be with you. Thank you. Well, Mark, we always like to start off our show with uh, maybe kind of like your background, uh, your origin story from where you grew up, uh, everything. Because like I always like to say, how you got from where you were to where you are now. So tell us about yourself. Well, I was born on the East Coast, but grew up on the east side of Indianapolis. So uh, I've been here since I was four years old and uh, consider myself a Hoosier. I uh, attended Indiana University uh, and uh, came out of there with an art education degree, Uh, but my attentions quickly turned to uh, the business of art. And in 1984, I opened uh, Rushman Gallery on Massachusetts Avenue. I handled contemporary fine art. Uh, Many of the artists that I represented uh, had Indiana ties, which would serve me well in this position here at the museum. I uh, had the business, uh, had the gallery for 25 years. I closed it in 2009. And for a couple of years, I was just working freelance. And then I was hired here at the Indiana State Museum and Historic Sites as their fine arts curator uh, in 2012. And uh, a couple of years ago, I became the uh, senior curator of art and culture, uh, overseeing a staff of cult- cultural curators, but still with a, with a big focus on the fine art collection and all that that entails. So uh, that's just a quick snapshot of my, of my so, life. Yeah. So Mark, was your interest, did your interest in art start at a young age? And do you, um, are you an artist yourself or um, what uh, is that history? Yeah, my interest did start at a young age. In grade school, um, uh, I even back uh, back that far, you know, uh, had uh, an interest in art. Uh, I was not uh, a, a, muse- a regular museum goer or anything to that extent. I did attend uh, uh, Saturday uh, classes, uh, summer classes at Heron School of Art. 
uh, and and you know the kind of you know, that was the catalyst from there going forward all through high school. Which again, I had an interest in art, took art classes, and then down at Indiana University uh, first as studio fine art, and then eventually uh, into art education. Uh, and it was really uh, that laid the groundwork for my interest in the gallery world and uh, recognizing my place in the art world, not so much making it, which uh, I really didn't have the talent for, and I respect people who do, but my, uh, my talents uh, were in selling work and representing artists and, and, and working across that community. And so in your gallery, what type of art did you favor? Was it mostly paintings or did you delve into 3D work? Uh, I would characterize it as contemporary fine art. And it was all across the board, all different types of work from painting, textiles, sculpture, printmaking, I mean, a little bit of everything. And again, with a heavy, heavy focus on Indiana artists. And, uh, and it really was uh, informative as to just the tremendous talent that we have across this state. Uh, and and uh, it served me well for, for the 25 yeah. years I was in business and, and still to this day. Yeah, you you actually had um, you were quite loyal. I mean, there was a loyalty built between you and quite a few of the artists. So I imagine that you had some artists for quite a length of time, and then new artists would come in. How would you? Do you go out and scout them? Did you? Did they come to you? I know it's a combination of both, but which? Um, can you tell us maybe about both ways? Yeah, a good number of the artists were with me for the entire run of the gallery, and we built up, you know, very strong relationships, not only business-wise, but also, you know, personal friendships. Uh, families got to know each other. Uh, in, in many respects, the gallery was very much like a big family. Uh, but as new talent would come along, make room for them, provide them with opportunities, I'd say that any given time I represented about 50 different artists, and that sounds like a lot, but when you go you know, discipline by discipline, you know, different, as I mentioned earlier, paintings, textiles, three-dimensional work, figurative work, landscape, so forth and so forth. Once you start to break that down, uh, it really isn't that many. Um, but I was uh, immensely loyal. Um, artists who were showing with me, we had uh, agreements in place that if they were showing with me, then I handled their work within a certain geographic boundary. And I think it served both the gallery and the artists well. But there was always room for um, new artists to come in uh, if, it, if they fit what I was trying to do and, and met their needs, then, uh, then the opportunities were there. But again, it goes back to those personal relationships. So it yes, does. It does. And I'm sure that that feeds in very much with um, the Indiana State Museum. So can you explain or tell us how an exhibit comes to fruition, like from the idea to the opening, what that process is like? Because I know like it doesn't happen like in a month. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not months. Not a, It's very much uh, a, a different scenario than the gallery days where, uh, you know, I was the sole decision maker working with the artists and so forth. It, it's a process here and it should be. It's, it's a large institution and, and a lot of things have to be taken in consideration. So instead of months, uh, we're generally working in years uh, in the planning process. 
But, you know, in some respects, uh, while there's a lot more involved in it, it's still very much about those personal relationships and going out in the community across the state and talking with artists, talking with curators and colleagues and and figuring out, you know, what our next steps are here. Uh, uh, and it that's across departments. I mean, a lot goes into the planning process, but there is, it's, it's not solely up to me. It, it's, it's, uh, I present opportunities uh, to leadership here. I make a case. Uh, sometimes it's uh, accepted and other times it's not for various reasons. Uh, but, uh, but it all starts with those uh, initial conversations, uh, whether, whether it's with a collector, whether it's, whether it's with the individual artist or another institution. You know, Larry, you mentioned our, our mission at the beginning of, of the uh, program and uh, sales are not included in that, uh, which was, you know, front and center with the gallery. Uh, it is to promote lifelong informal learning uh, with the people, places, and things of Indiana. And of course, my focus is on fine art uh, or and the arts in general. So um, so uh, it, it is a little bit different process. But at the end of the day, uh, we hope the experience is rewarding. I'm interested so in the... I'm interested in the history of the actual building itself. And one of the things you have on your website is it's uh, the whole concept has been 150 years in the uh, making. So kind of go back to the whole history of the museum. And then, of course, one of the things I found interesting is about the construction materials and how it represents all of Indiana. So if you'd speak to that. Yeah, uh, the museum have a rich history. You know, it, it, it it's rooted in everything Indiana. You know, we are an Indiana-centric museum. And for many years, uh, most people, I should say, are familiar with the museum when it was over on Alabama Street. Uh, and it remained there uh, for some 60 years before it moved to the current location in the White River State Park, just off of West Washington Street. And this building, uh, we're coming up on our 20th anniversary, uh, was constructed in 2002. Uh, and uh, it's really um, uh, a spectacular uh, building, um, drawing in all of the different um, components uh, that make up Indiana. You know, there's homage. It's a limestone, steel, and glass building, which all have deep roots in Indiana. As you walk around the outside of the building, we have the 92 county icon uh, experience where we have each of the counties that are interpreted uh, in a relief or a three-dimensional format. So uh, it's not only inside the building where you can learn uh, and, and experience uh, a variety of things, but even the exterior of the building provides you with that opportunity as well. But uh, the fine art collection, most people don't know that we're the Indiana State Museum and Historic Sites has one of the largest state-owned art collections in the country uh, in excess of 7,000 objects across all the different disciplines, painting, again, textile, uh, three-dimensional work, uh, works on paper. And then, of course, our marquee uh, collection is the T.C. Steele collection and our historic site in southern Indiana. And I would uh, urge you, if you haven't been to the, to the site, just outside of Nashville, Indiana, by all means, make the trip. So do you, do you weigh in on um, acquisition for the permanent collection? 
Yeah, that's one of my responsibilities. Um, I go out in across the state into the different communities, talking with artists, and uh, we're continually adding to the collection. Um, we're probably most people know as for our historical works. Uh, we are also very active in con uh, collecting contemporary art for the collection. Uh, we want the collection to represent the people of Indiana, the artists who are working here. And as our population uh, uh, changes, uh, we want the collection to, to reflect that. So it's not only the discipline, but it's the people who are making it. Uh, uh, and as you can imagine, over the, the past hundred years, the creative process has evolved to re reflect the, you know, the technology and the attitudes of the day. So, uh, so it's, it's a, a tremendous opportunity for me, and, and I hope my enthusiasm comes through for the people when they come in and see, see my exhibits. Do the, uh, does, if an artist would be interested in doing that, could they contact you? I mean, is it a reverse process? You know, I think I would like to be represented in the museum and make a portfolio presentation. Would that be a process that you'd be open to? Or? We're contacted all the time with, with donations or potential acquisitions. Um, you mentioned earlier, you know, acquisitions, you know, how does that all work? We take things through the donation process, but we also have uh, the ability to acquire things uh, through purchase on a daily basis, uh, whether it's, you know, works of art or furniture or quilts or uh, what have you. These things come across my desk constantly. And then on the flip side of that, it's my job to constantly review the, the art collection and determine where we have gaps and go out in the communities and, and look for uh, the works that will fill those gaps. So um, we're, you know, we're not going to compete with the Getty. Uh, uh, you know, we are a state institution, but we are active and we uh, carefully consider uh, donations and acquisitions. Uh, we have a formal process, a review process called the Collections Review Committee, which is made up of a group of my peers. And if I feel strongly about something or if one of my colleagues feels strongly about and one of my fellow colleagues, one of my fellow curators, I should say, feels strongly about bringing something in, uh, the presentation is made and, and, and uh, a decision comes from there. So, uh, so it's, it's a constant uh, line of communication between us and the public we serve. So, Mark, as you, uh, okay, so you have the exhibit put together. Do you also... Um, curate or or do the hands-on experiences or what other experiences if somebody comes to the State Museum would go along with an exhibit? Well almost every exhibit now every experience has that hands-on component and that's uh, part of the evolution uh, that's taken place here at the museum over the past few years. The recognition that people experience things in different ways and that just showing an, an object and maybe putting a title up on the wall and, and the media uh, and so forth isn't enough. So we look to engage our visitors and provide them with a varied experience. Uh, we want to uh, foster uh, you know, conversations. We want, to, it, we want their visits to be a rich experience. Uh, and we also recognize that people are coming in with uh, um, 
different levels of, of understanding of, of, you know, possibly what they're going to look at. Um, and we want to be able to be accessible to everyone. So, so yes, the um, part of my, you know, charge and, and the challenge that I took on was uh, the evolution of the art exhibit. You know, if you go back to the gallery days when you put, let's say, a, a, a painting exhibition together and you put a label up and, and the artist's name and, and, and the media and the price. Uh, that's fine for the commercial world, but uh, for the commercial gallery world, but it's, it's not sufficient for uh, a museum ex exhibit. It, it, you, you need to serve your visitors in, in a more comprehensive way. And, and how do you address the youngest visitor? Well, again, uh, part of that is, uh, is through the hands-on activities and and making the experience, the exhibit, accessible. So if you have, let's say, grandparents who are bringing in their grandchildren, we provide them with these experiences where they can do something together, where they can see something up on the wall or walk around a piece of sculpture, and then there would be uh, uh, some type of hands-on activity in close proximity that would relate to what they were just uh, looking at uh, and it will give them an opportunity to uh, to experience it in a new way. Uh, you know, I was going to ask, uh, it's not just the Central Museum, but you have, what, 12 historic sites around the state, uh, and I know that's not necessarily your your field, but just speak maybe briefly about those and what those represent. Yeah, uh, our 11 historic sites, actually. Okay. And we have the campus here. Uh, yeah, and I mentioned earlier the T.C. Steele historic site, which is something that I'm closely involved with. And then we have 10 other ones. Most of them are in the southern part of the state. We have the Gene Stratton Porter uh, and Limberlost for the, uh, the author, uh, Gene Stratton Porter, in the northern part of the state. But each of them, just like the museum here, and we're one big, for, you know, organization, you know, we, the sites are very much uh, the museum as well. So we view it as one big organization. Um, each of them, you know, talk about Indiana history. Uh, they have the same mission that we have, you know, that is associated with the, the Indianapolis uh, campus. Uh, and we, we work with those communities uh, to do the best to, to tell the story and engage those communities. And if, if somebody is, is is visiting one of those sites, whether it be T.C. Steele or the Gene Stratton Porter site or Angel Mounds, we want that to be an authentic and completely immersive experience uh, for the visitors. So they play a pivotal role uh, in, in furthering our mission and um, serving our, our visitors and, and the public of Indiana the best we can. So speaking directly about um, T.C. Steele, do you, how often does the art get changed out? Because the, the range of that art is so broad from landscapes to portraits to uh, drafting anatomy. I mean, it's just it's very prolific. So how does it get changed out and how often? We rotate uh, anywhere from 18 to 20 pieces on an annual basis. Uh, at any given time, there's you know, somewhere between 50 and 60 original paintings uh, at the site in both the house and the large studio. And for those of your listeners who haven't been there before, uh, the way I look at it is they walk in and it's just as if T.C. Steele walked out. 
it's literally stepping back into time and the way um, we have um, put the exhibit together, the experience together is probably a better term for it, is that you are literally stepping back in time and being there as the artist and his wife Selma would have been there in 1907 through 1926. The house has all the original contents. Uh, the entire state was left to the state of Indiana uh, when Selma Steele passed away. And uh, we have been the stewards of, of that um, site uh, since uh, that time. And uh, we've made many upgrades to that site. It's really, even I tell people, even if you don't have an appreciation for art, just going to the site, the walking trails, Selma's Gardens, just being there, it, it's just a really uh, uh, wonderful way to spend the day. Um, but in the large studio, uh, we have basically Steele's output as an artist in chronological order. From his earliest days in, in Munich, uh, at the Munich Art Academy, the Royal Academy of Art in Munich, Germany, uh, up through his time in Indianapolis, and then eventually... Uh, his his time down at the uh, at the house of the singing winds at the site there, so uh, it's a rich experience and uh, and again I encourage everyone to make the trip. You have a relationship with the Indiana Arts Commission. I realize their mission is different, but uh, is there some cooperative things that you might work with them in terms of obtaining pieces for the museum? It's not so much uh, obtaining pieces for the museum. It's more of working with them recognizing that we share many of the same goals of, of furthering the appreciation of the visual arts, performing arts uh, in Indiana and, and exposing people who are coming from out of town to just, you know, the talents that we have. So it's more of, uh, uh, of working with them to identify opportunities where we can work together. And of course, just like the State Museum, they're a statewide organization. So in many ways, we're serving a lot of the same uh, constituency. And, uh, and they've been great partners. Louis Ricky just retired, and we, have, I have, we had uh, a, a great working relationship with uh, Louis, and we're looking forward to working with uh, the new executive director. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it, it's uh, again, not so much acquiring work, although, you know, certainly that has happened over the years just by, you know, the communications back and forth of, of artists that they've worked with, events that we've had here at the museum, uh, um, and, and just kind of that collegial uh, nature of, of the relationship. Well, real quick, Mark, we're just about ready to wrap up. Tell us about how people can find you online, uh, locations, and uh, that type of information. You can uh, visit our website at indianamuseum.org. I can tell you about uh, current exhibits, upcoming exhibits. It can give you information about all of our historic sites, uh, uh, programming that we have going on here. We have a very active programming uh, component to the museum. There's never a dull moment here. Um, it, the site will also give you, uh, you know, the cost of visiting the museum. It will talk about events we have coming up like Celebration Crossing, which is our big holiday experience that has gone through a major uh, 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 renovation, if you call it that, for this year. Uh, that opens uh, shortly after Thanksgiving. It will run through January 2nd. Uh, and there are many um, 
programs and activities associated with Celebration Crossing that I'm sure your listeners would enjoy. Uh, but then again, we have exhibits in the works for 2022 and the planning process for 2023. Uh, we're always looking to uh, uh, serve our visitors and, and, and make it a great experience for those who are coming to the museum. Okay, we'd like to thank you, Mark Rushman, from the Chief Finance Arts uh, Curator for the Indiana State Museum and Historic Sites. Mark, thank you so much for being on Art on the Air. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. With you. Thank you. You're listening to Art on the Air, WVLP 103.1 FM, and on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM. We'd like to welcome to Art in the Air. He's American born and trained. Uh, he continues to enthrall the audiences with the ability to conduct people through his language of music, uh, innovative programming and balance between contemporary music, world music, and this, of course, the standard orchestral repertoire. He loves like world cl- of classical music. Please welcome to Art in the Air, Troy Webdell. Welcome to our show. Thank you. Oh. Big welcome. Hello. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Well, Troy, we like to always have our audience listen to your origin story about everything. So where you grew up, where you went to school, music influences, and also family, whatever it is. So we like to know like how you got from where you were to where you are now. So please share that. Well, it's it's really not that exciting, but I guess I'll <laughs> definitely share it. Um, I am from Indiana, was born in Valparaiso, basically lived in Valparaiso my uh, entire life, Valparaiso, Chesterton area. I did go to Chesterton High School, uh, so kind of in that area between. And, um, you know, basic family life, uh, music wasn't very important. It was important, but um, not so much in terms of classical necessarily. I mean, I started piano maybe when I was six or seven and then, you know, went through school music programs and such. But uh, the love of music really... Uh, took hold, and I went forward into uh, college, Butler University in Indianapolis, and um, kind of stuck around, really, but also branching out um, into other places. But Indiana's really always been my home base. What was your instrument? I started out um, on trumpet, and then in college, I double majored trumpet and percussion. Very good. I, I'm an old trumpet player. Not very good one, though. So, <laughs> so uh, what drew you to conducting? And maybe we're jumping ahead a little bit of your story, but talk about maybe your educational background that then decided to kind of start looking into conducting versus playing. Well, with conducting, you know, playing an instrument is, is wonderful, but with conducting, the orchestra is your instrument. And I really like that idea of shaping the sound, the complete sound, and not just one sound. I think that's, um, for me, it's just something that feels natural to do. It's so interesting that you, I'm so glad you said that because when I watch you conduct, your conducting is very fluid. Like some conductors are very staccato, you know, um, but you're very, very fluid. And so what you said makes perfect sense, the way you feel about it and how that's, how your body translates that. Thank you. Yeah, so, a conductor, conductor should uh, embody the music, basically. And of course, and, in the Chicago Tribune said, as a conductor and educator, Troy Webdell is the next Leonard Bernstein. So that's an excellent uh, accreditation for you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> 
So we've um, had a string of conductors that we've had the pleasure to speak with. Do all of you hang out together and share <laughs> notes? And um, Well, uh, actually, not really so much now because of everything but right i guess i, I should have qualified but it pre, pre-pandemic in the in the past i mean occasionally we would or talk you know communication with the other conductors i think that's important to talk with people in your profession really so has the pandemic given you afforded you the opportunity to reach out to conductors across the world i mean do you guys zoom Yes, uh, zooming uh, with conductors and composers. That's it's really been a nice way to get in contact with composers as well. And that's that's also I I had read, and this is something I I did want to ask you about. So when you say you collaborate com- with composers, what is your role in that? How do you so so can you describe what that's like the collaboration process for you? It really depends on on the composer and the project. It could be just premiering a work that already exists, or it could be um, commissioning a composer to write a new work, um, or it could be just you know talking about their music, you know, and their life. There's a lot of the trips that I've taken to visit composers around the world have been to get to know the composers and their music, and to just kind of see what makes them tick. And that that helps me understand the, their music. So, where have you traveled to? What are the what are the places you have traveled to? And and then a follow up to that would be, um, have you have you recently or maybe not so recently commissioned new work from composers? And what would that be? It's so exciting. Yeah, um, traveling most recently, I would say. Uh, before the pandemic, of course, yes. China. I've been to China ten times, um, working with musicians and such. Um, Greece, Athens, Greece. Um, that was around around uh, right before the pandemic, uh, and then Spain uh, in Madrid worked with uh, composer Anton Garcia Abril. Uh, yeah, I was thinking of the next part of your question. I forgot the next part of your question. <laughs> So what have what have you commissioned? I mean, what composer did you choose a part? I mean, have you commissioned new works? Oh yes, many many new works. Um, and there's a, as there are works in in the works right now <laughs> or in the future that um, I can't quite say uh, mention on those. But um, many of the composers that I've uh, commissioned pieces from have been American composers, living composers. Um, Michael Shelley is one. He's from Indianapolis. He teaches at Butler University. Done many of his compositions and commissioned him to do many pieces, uh, for example. Now, you have an interest in world music, uh, which is uh, sort of out of the symphonic realm to some degree. So tell us a little bit about uh, what world music uh, influences you or that you enjoy. Or, Well, I, you know, music is the universal language. And... With all, with all the traveling and stuff, you get to see that firsthand, that even if you can't speak the language, the music communicates. And I think that's, that's a big part of why I like world music and, and try to bring it into the classical realm. Because every, every country has its own classical repertoire that we may never hear at all in America. I have to say, I loved your conducting of the Jasmine Flower. It was just so 
beautiful. Okay, so you did that in China. Did you also conduct orchestras in Spain and in Greece while you were there, or were those purely mm-hmm. visits? Those were just visiting composers there. Yeah. Okay. Most, most of my conducting outside of the U.S. has been in China. Yeah. It's just that series of music is just so beautiful. Yes. Yeah. And you may find um, music from a certain country really kind of hits you in the heart a certain way. You know, I mean, um, and I would say listen to music from other countries and see if you can find that. It's so distinct because when you, I mean, with every region, they have their very, very distinct sound. Mm -hmm, Definitely. Well, Troy, I see also in your repertoire that you have done uh, stage productions of uh, various, well, what I call musicals because I'm a retired musical theater director, uh, like uh-huh. Sweeney Todd and Parade and, of course, Man of La Mancha. So tell us about how that, uh, approaching that, of course, as a, a concert piece, uh, you know, stage, I guess I'll say semi-stage concert piece with an orchestra mm-hmm. versus, you know, just doing it regular on stage. Well, first of all, I treat every musical as if it is a concert piece. That's kind of, and that may be different than other conductors or maybe the same, but it's just, it's a, the difference is, you're in a pit, <laughs> you know, so the orchestra, as you know, the orchestra's down there, the uh, vocalists are on stage and there's all the other parts to it. But I kind of, I always treat it as one ensemble, one concert experience, just with the visual element, basically. And it's, it's proven to be very successful like that. I would think one of the differences between a pit orchestra and what you're doing on stage is that on stage, you're much more conducting the entire piece. When a pit orchestra, the conductors, in at least in the musical theater genre, generally following the performer on stage. So there's a little bit of a different dynamic, I would imagine, when you're doing a concert piece. Uh, there is, and it is, is a little bit different. Um, although sometimes in an orchestra, when you do concertos with right. uh, soloists, it's a very similar kind of thing. Sure. Where you're following. Of course, whenever you have any kind of soloist so, and everything. So tell us about your journey into uh, conducting, how you got to, well, some of the places you are, or, you know, where you first started conducting and the different places you've been. And then we'll eventually get to the South Shore Orchestra and how the formation of that. Okay. Um, well, starting conducting would really kind of go to college um, at Butler University. And that's really where I started. It started to open my eyes to the um, the world of conducting, and it really has to do with conducting teachers and seeing certain conductors. Um, because prior to college, I really, I mean, I knew about conducting orchestras and things, but I didn't really have the um, guidance or mentorship, so to speak, to get you know to the, my eyes open to that point. So in college, um, there were many great conductors, um, band conductor, William Hockeppel, um, and then orchestra conductor, Stanley DeRusha. Um, and Stanley really opened my eyes to the world of conducting. And I mean, how's his book? How's his book? I was thinking of getting his book. Should I? Oh, yeah, you should. You should. <laughs> his book is very good. Magic of Conducting. Magic of Conducting. Yes. Yeah. Um, it really goes through the phases of conducting and stuff, but if a book does not, will not do it justice. I mean, to, to see, you know, you have to see and um, just to see the, the music embodied by the conductor and not like, not like um, frivolous movement and stuff. It really has to be like some conductors overdo things and it just has to really match the music. So right. 
that's where my eyes were opened up to that. And just from that point on, that was my focus. You're listening to Art on the Air, WVLP 103.1 FM, and on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM. Is it unusual for a trumpet player to become a conductor? I mean, you, a lot of times it seems like they come from the violin section, generally speaking. Yeah. So, and of course, you know, knowing how being an old trumpet player, I know when I, I came across a piano or pianissimo, I said, "Well, that can't be for us. That's going to be for the woodwinds and strings." So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've heard, I've have heard that before. It's like you're a trumpet player, or you're a percussionist. Yeah, you're a conductor. Well, <laughs> yeah, percussionist uh, players they just make it up back there. They notes. We don't need any notes. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And we have two sticks, so now you just have one stick. So you're okay. Yeah, but you got the same. Mo- you know, it's the same movement. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. No, I think I think that is actually, especially being in the percussion section, has helped me see a more wide view of the orchestra. So, like, if you're in the trumpet section or other sections, you're really you're sitting in this area of the orchestra and you can't see what's going on. But as a percussionist, you're standing in the very back and you see the entire orchestra you see the conductor and you see how the orchestra is reacting to that so i think that's that was actually a beneficial point you know i have something like um in in watching some of the videos you have the large screen with all of these images is that distracting for you as the conductor cuz some of them were like cartoon images and some are the band but it's always like there's like so much activity going on are you able to not yes. let that be a distraction it's definitely a distraction uh, you're i think you're referring to some of the videos from china the concerts in china um in uh there was a concert we did in nanjing china where there was a gigantic video screen in the back and uh, they did do um, like movies with the music we were playing and, and things like that. And it was very distracting. I could not look at the screen at all. I had to um, laser because, focus, laser focus, because if, <laughs> if I look at the screen, I'm delayed. My motion is delayed from what's actually happening and what I'm doing. So it's I told the orchestra too, don't look at the screen. <laughs> look at be, me. <laughs> look at me. Right. But uh it was so large, though, and it was just—I mean, I yeah. had to—I had to just close my eyes yes. and just listen to the music. It was a very difficult concert, and that particular concert was also broadcast on television live uh, throughout China. So not only that, but there were camera people like crawling through the orchestra to get different shots and things. <laughs> so. So you've got people with cameras crawling through the orchestra and then this big thing on screen. And yeah, it was very difficult. So what is your connection to China? What brought you to China initially? Well, um, early on in South Shore Orchestra's history, we did a concert in Valparaiso um, at, where was it? Ivy Tech. And at the concert was um, Zhenyin Meng who is uh, the director of the Confucius Institute at Valparaiso University. And that's kind of where we got started with that. Um, After the concert, he mentioned, he said, you know, we're looking for groups to partner with, to go to China, to do cultural exchange. And that was really the birth of that. I want to continue on your journey in orchestras. So you graduated Butler, and then where in your journey, in your conducting path, did you start pairing up with orchestras or being part of that? Well, actually, um, 
I started off with bands in the band world. And um, my my degree was music education and, and still is, I'm still very focused on education. Um, so as a music educator, I had taught uh, through college, I had done some teaching at Chesterton High School with the band program in there. Um, and then out of college, I got a job at Portage High School and was teaching orchestra and band there for about, um, actually started off with marching band. So, um, you know, in the marching band world. That's a whole different world, too. <laughs> it, it is a whole different world. But, you know, you talk to any any music, any conductor, even orchestra, top orchestra conductors, they've all started off with marching band. They all have marching band stories. So, of course. <laughs> of course. So about the, the children. So at first, you know, you're very focused on technique and getting the notes right. But when does when do you and how do you introduce um, the feeling of the emotion of the piece so they can play that emotion rather than just the perfect notes from the beginning? And I think I think that's a mistake that a lot of teachers make. They wait until the notes are there and then put in the expression. I, I'm always of the mindset of do the expression as you're teaching the notes. So I feel know. the same way about art. Yeah. yeah. Very. Yeah. Teach them the hard stuff, at you know, teach them how to do the hard stuff at, in the very beginning. Right. You know, but there is there is a level where they have to know notes, though, before you can get to that point, too. But um, it really should go hand in hand. So, um, yeah. So after I taught in Portage, maybe six years or so, and then I went to Crown Point high school, um, middle schools, and did orchestra and band there as well. And then after that, I taught there for a very long time, um, maybe 18 years or so, and then uh, moved to Fort Wayne, to the Fort Wayne Philharmonic. Just out of curiosity, when did you leave Crown Point? What year? It uh, would have been maybe 2018, 17, oh, okay. something like that. So you overlapped with Bill Woods. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, oh, he yeah. and I were colleagues at uh, Munster for many, many years doing musical oh, theater. Okay. And so, yeah, okay. he's, in fact, I just saw him yesterday, but yeah, he's uh, working with him in musical theater was a joy because he and I were almost always on the same page. So we're other, uh, other people, just as a side note, I work with, um, you know, they, they, the choral person would teach him the, the notes. I really had to teach him the interp. I said, well, you know, you don't sing it necessarily a bunch of quarter notes there. You lead and lag. So Bill and yeah. I Bill and I were on the same page together. So that's it. Uh, so you're leaving Crown Point and going to? Uh, Fort Wayne Philharmonic. So that was kind of the leap into professional conducting, full-time professional conducting. Um, and, of course, during the entire time I was teaching, I was also developing South Shore Orchestra and getting that uh, professional ensemble going so a lot of things going on <laughs> so that's the origin so tell us a little bit more about the origin of south shore orchestra what planted the seed right, to do how, it and how you physically do it for yes to uh <laughs> Valpo yeah. is a stretch <laughs> it is well you know on a good day it's a two-hour drive it, but there's a time change coming back. So, but <laughs> well, and it's usually under construction. It usually takes me three yeah. hours to get to Fort Wayne. So. Oh yeah, yeah, that's taken me three hours before too. But <laughs> you know, the more you do it, it's kind of like perception of time. The more you do it, the less it seems. So, yeah, it's it's, and books on tape, books on tape, or podcasts help. <laughs> 
It'd be nice to yeah. have high speed rail to between points, and then you can just pop in and do that. So, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Social Orchestra was formed how many years ago, and uh, what was its kind of its origin story? We talked a little bit about, but you know how it's grown over the years. Mm-hmm. This is our seventeenth season, so we've been around seventeen years, and our first concert we were actually. Uh, started with the name South Shore Chamber Orchestra because the first concert only had 15 people in it. It was a chamber orchestra. And that uh, that concert was at a toll theater in Hammond. Um, small theater, but a nice space uh, for a nice little, you know, little orchestra. And then after that, we moved to Valparaiso and decided to make uh, an effort to expand. And then the, the next concert we had, we had a 40-piece orchestra. So, wow. yeah, and uh, most of that was word of mouth, actually. Uh, we didn't put out any ads or anything like that. It was just <laughs> like, we want to build this orchestra, you know, let's fill the musicians. There are so many uh, amazing musicians in the area. It's just, true. Yeah. And you now kind of make the Memorial Opera House, your, like you're becoming the house orchestra, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And, um, you know, I we've talked about doing more there and I would love to do more there. It's just a matter of scheduling and things like it would be great to do some of the shows and things there as well. And, and that may be in the future in the works. We'll have to see. But um, uh, it's a great space. It's a great um, community, the Opera House community. And uh, we really enjoy being there. So what's a typical season for South Shore Orchestra? How many concerts a year or events that you do? Uh, we tried to do um, this a pre-pandemic, of course. We tried to do at least uh, three main concerts. So a spring, fall, and a holiday concert. Uh, many times we'll get a fourth concert in there. Uh, we also do, uh, we started doing uh, this past summer during the, the summer, concerts at Anderson's Winery out in their garden. They have oh, a yeah. Beautiful, yes. Yeah, beautiful outdoor garden. Uh, so we were able to do that this summer um, outside, and uh, it was very nice. What's the future for South Shore Orchestra? Do you have any other bigger plans to expand the season or anything like that? Yes, uh, definitely. We're going to be working on expanding the season, um, getting some more uh, concerts with the Opera House, doing some more things in the community. Um, I'd like to get some more chamber things going in the community. Um, again, some more partnerships with the with world music uh, type things. New commissions are in the works. So that's so of- important. I'm so glad you support that. Yeah, very important. We have just a little over a minute left. So tell us a little bit how people can find out more about you personally, about the South Shore Orchestra, and even your other endeavors in Fort Wayne and such as that, the websites, contact information. Sure. Um, so for the South Shore Orchestra, you can go to southshoreorchestra.org. Uh, for Fort Wayne Philharmonic, you can go to fwphil with a ph.org. And my website is troywebdell.com. And in the last about 30 seconds, uh, how has COVID uh, impacted you over this uh, last year real quick? 
uh, it's impacted me and all musicians greatly. It's been really rough for all musicians. Um, but luckily, I think there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and we're starting to emerge. <laughs> yeah, we certainly hope so. Well, we'd like to thank uh, Maestro Troy Webdell, who is an American board trained uh, conductor locally, the South Shore Orchestra, which is a regional professional orchestra involved with uh, many more things. It's been in 40 major cities all around the world and loves a whole wide range of music. He's an award-winning conductor and been in China and all about. Troy, thank you so much for sharing your story on Art on the Air. Thank you so much thank for you. having me. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Yes, very fun. Thank you. You've been listening to Art on the Air, and we'd like to thank our guests this week on WVLP 103.1 FM and Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM, our weekly program covering arts and arts events throughout Northwest Indiana and beyond. Art on the Air is heard every Friday at 11 a.m. and rebroadcast Monday at 5 p.m. on WVLP. Art on the Air streams live at WVLP.org and is rebroadcast on Monday at 5 p.m. Plus is also heard on Lakeshore Public Radio, 89.1 FM, every Sunday at 7 p.m., also streaming live at lakeshorepublicradio.org and is available on Lakeshore Public Radio's website as a podcast. Our spotlight interviews are also heard Wednesdays on Lakeshore Public Radio. Thanks again to Greg Kovach, WVLP Station Manager, and Tom Maloney, Vice President of Radio Operations for Lakeshore Public Radio. Our theme music is by Billy Foster with a vocal by Renee Foster. Art in the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant and the National Endowment for the Arts. Underwriters for Art in the Air, Walt Breidinger of Paragon Investments, and Mary LeVan, Arts Patron. Art in the Air is always looking for financial support. We'd like to thank our current supporters. If you're looking to support Art in the Air, Esther and I especially would invite you to become an underwriter of this program in particular. We have information on our website at breck.com AOTA. You can find out support information there. So don't just be an Art on the Air listener. Become a supporter or underwriter in whatever amount you're able to do so so we continue to bring you this great content and this great local programming. And like I say every week, don't give till it hurts. Give till it feels good. And you'll feel so good about supporting Art on the Air. Information about Art on the Air is available at our website, breck.com AOTA. That's breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com AOTA. That includes a complete show archive, spotlight interviews, plus our show is available on multiple podcast platforms, including NPR One. Please like us on Facebook, Art on the Air, WVLP, for information about upcoming shows and interviews. If you're interested in being a guest or send us information about your arts, arts-related event, or exhibit, please email us at aota at breck.com. That's aota at breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com, or contact us through our Facebook page. Your hosts were Larry Breckner and Esther Golden, and we invite you back next week for another episode of Art on the Air. Aloha, everyone. Have a splendid week. Express yourself through art. And show the world your heart. Express yourself through art. And show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Larry. Art on the air today. Stay in the know with Larry and Esther. Art on the air our way. Express yourself through art. And show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show